Worship team, kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church at this time. For those of us remaining, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, the passage that was read in Scripture reading this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5. As we come to this closing section of the fifth chapter, starting at the 17th verse, we find some important teaching concerning the responsibilities of the church body to leaders. Now, some might look at this text and say, wow, isn't that a little self-serving? I mean, as pastor, should you really go there where you're talking about compensation and where you're talking about respect and where you're talking about all of these things? I mean, isn't that a little bit of a conflict of interest? And uh, let me share this with you. This is the Word of God. We go into it unapologetically, no matter what the subject, no matter what the theme. Timothy has been given a great deal of information about leaders' responsibilities to the church body. But something that the Word of God also teaches us quite clearly is there are responsibilities from the church body to the leaders. And we have to see that in the Word of God. We have to understand that in order for a church to be a healthy church, we have to understand a very important concept. We have to understand how we should treat our leaders. And that's what we're going to see right here in this text. Biblical apostolic teaching concerning how we're to treat leaders. Now, by leaders, let me be very clear on the definition. The passage is going to talk about elders. And we believe that there are elders who serve as volunteers. And there are also full-time elders who serve the Lord full-time and are therefore requiring some compensation. The scripture talks about us respecting both the lay leaders and the staff leaders. But when we begin this text and we come to the 17th verse, we see that there is a particular class of elders that Timothy is to see to their support And that's where we want to begin. We need to provide for the needs of the leading, teaching, preaching elders. And that's where we're going to begin. These preaching, leading, teaching elders are worthy of double honor according to the Word of God. So let's look carefully and let's try and unpack exactly what the Word of God is saying here. Verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. Now, as we come to this text, we find this curious phrase that the NIV renders direct the affairs of the church well. And what we find this word to mean is this is the idea of leadership. This is the idea of authority. The NIV softens it somewhat when it says direct the affairs of the church. But here's what we see. When we find this word used in the pastoral epistles, and it's used five times, in many of those instances, it referred to the head of the household directing the affairs of the home. We found it in relation to those who were the head of the household being evaluated to be elders. And it said they must lead or rule or manage their own household well. And we see it again in that context when it pertains to deacons. So the concept is this, that they aren't tyrants by any stretch of the imagination. They're not dictators. They're not the king of the castle. But they do have the responsibility of lovingly and authoritatively leading within the church. And here's something that we need to understand. In order to lead, someone has to follow, right? In order to lead, there has to be a response to that biblical authority that God has given where the church body comes in behind the leader and they support that work. And that's what we find as we go on in this text. 
The 17th verse says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of something. Now, what are they worthy of? The scripture tells us that they are worthy of double honor. Now, as I was preparing this message, I went to several commentators and I looked up the word in the original language. And there was a big debate between those who were trying to decipher what this word means in this context. Some of the Bible scholars were saying that the idea of double honor means that we're to respect them. And certainly there's a a, a place for that uh, when we look at leadership. We need to understand that by virtue of being a church leader, they are in a position to where people should come in behind them and respect them in that position. Double honor carries with it an aspect of that and a very practical reason for that, right? How do you follow someone that you don't respect? It's impossible, right? So what we have to do is have a person in leadership and by virtue of their position, but also by virtue of who we choose as leaders, and that was established in the third chapter, they are to be people of character, We are to come in behind them, and we are to respect them. That's the concept that's being shared. But there's also another aspect. It carries with it the idea as well that they are to be provided for. The idea of honorarium. In other words, the idea that as they serve the Lord full-time, The church comes alongside them and enables them to serve full-time. I've known a number of people who serve in ministry, and they are tent makers. They have the responsibility of providing for their own uh, living expenses while serving in the church. As a matter of fact, when I was in seminary, I was a tent maker. I had a little church out in rural Indiana, and I served in that church, and worked my way while being a student uh, through ministry in that church because as a smaller rural church, they couldn't afford to support a pastor. So from 3 in the morning until 7 in the morning, I unloaded trucks at UPS. From 7 in the morning until 5 in the evening, I carried a full load at Grace Theological Seminary. And then in the evenings and on Sundays... I served the church body. I was dead dog tired, and after three years of that, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I was worn out. The check that I had to write physically in order to do all of that robbed me of the opportunity to be a husband to my wife because I was gone all the time, robbed me the opportunity of being a good student because I only had so much reserve and so much time to pour into my studies. And I think it even robbed me of the opportunity to be the pastor that I could have been to those people. So what the Word of God is telling us is the church has a responsibility when there are those who are working at preaching and teaching and leading, that the church has the responsibility of coming alongside them and helping them. The church needs to recognize that God puts leaders in place and that as a church, that respect part that we were talking about earlier, where we look to them and we respect what they're doing and we respect them as people, that that entails more than just looking up to them. When we go to Hebrews chapter 13, the scripture says this, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority, they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Now, this is a very clear statement about this relationship between the church body and the leaders of the church body. And the idea is this. If God puts a person in position of leadership, it is absolutely impossible for them to lead if no one listens to anything that they have to say. We understand that, don't we? We see that in the home. If you try to parent without your kids listening to anything that you say, what happens? The home blows up, right? And the same thing is true in the church. There are people that the Holy Spirit puts into place to lead the church body. 
And the church body has the responsibility of listening to their leadership and following it. Yes, they are to compare it with what the Word of God says. But if they don't transgress the Word of God, and if they are put into their position of leadership by the Spirit of God, a responsibility of the church family is to follow them. And look at this next statement. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now let's talk about this and unpack that idea for just a moment. Many statistics are startling about the short term of many who go into full-time Christian work. Startling statistics. Out of those who attend seminary or Bible college, 85% of them won't last the first 10 years. Huge. And the statistics get worse and worse and worse after that. And as a pastor, as I've counseled people, as I've shared uh, with them and as they've shared with me their story, so many of them talk about the challenge that it is to serve the Lord because of the difficulty that they meet interpersonally within the church body. And it's frightening. When we see people who are dedicating their lives to service or who already have very busy jobs and then come in to lead as elders, the church should make their work a joy and not a burden. That's something the scripture directs very, very clearly. But also this aspect of caring for the material and fiscal needs of those who serve. Look as we continue in this text. And we find that proper support for full-time elders is clearly established in Scripture. Look at verse 18. And in verse 18, this is a quote from Old Testament law. Where in Deuteronomy chapter 25, 4... There's a law about ox who go in to thresh the grain and they should have the opportunity to munch on some of that as they work. So Paul is drawing a parallel. He's saying the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading the grain for the worker deserves his wages. I'm so thankful the scripture compares me to an ox. (laughs) Isn't that lovely? I'm sure I could be compared in other ways, too. But But what we find here is a principle that if someone or something is doing work, it should derive from their work certain benefits. That's the concept. So what the Word of God is calling for, what, what, what Paul is doing is saying, hey, we have a scriptural principle here. If there's someone whose full-time work is serving the Lord, they're administering they are teaching, they are preaching, then they should be given some of the benefit of that position. Then look at the next statement. The next statement we find is the worker deserves his wages. Now this is very similar to something that Jesus gave in his teaching for in the Luke, uh, the, the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 5, it says this, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house, And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you. Now here's the statement. For the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. So the idea is Jesus was saying to his disciples, when you go to a town or a village, draw from them whatever they will offer in support of your work. And don't be ashamed of it, was his idea, because the worker deserves his wages. So what the scripture is telling us is this. When a person is laboring full time, it is appropriate for the church to come alongside them, to partner with them in serving the Lord. We do that with our missionaries. We do that with our pastoral staff. We come alongside them, and in so doing we are participating with them in the work of the Lord. As we give, 
We are joining with them in opening the way for them to do this more effectively. And I believe, and I have scriptural authority on this, that in so doing, God will reward us for the way that we have supported those who serve in the work of the Lord. The scripture, though, warns us. As a person who is working full-time, we have to be careful not to allow money to be the driving force. We want balance in this. All of us have seen horrible examples of people who live affluent lives and then come to their congregations and ask for them to give sacrificially so they can continue that affluent life. Not what God had in mind. In fact, flip over to the sixth chapter, the fifth verse. There, the apostle warns Timothy that there are some who will take advantage of the support that would be given. And he talks about some false teachers, people who were promoting quarrels and strife and malicious talk, and they were constantly causing friction. And notice the last part of that fifth verse goes on to say, who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Let me share this. If our motivation is purely financial in serving the Lord, then we're doing wrong. Now, most pastors are not affluent. In fact, most pastors live very modest lives. But there are some who abuse the opportunity to draw their support from the congregation. They more or less intimidate or use guilt to achieve as much as they possibly can. Shepherds are called to minister to the flock, not fleece the flock. And they have to be careful about that. Peter said this, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. This is what God wants in his leaders. The church has the responsibility to come alongside helping to meet the needs of those leaders. The leaders have the responsibility of not becoming greedy and coming to the place to where they demand from the congregation a greater lifestyle than the rest of the congregation. There has to be balance. But then the text goes on and it starts to talk about the importance of protecting elders. And we also have to hold them accountable. So let's look carefully at the next part of this passage. And after it talks about the support that is required, look at verse 19. Verse 19 calls the church body to protect those who serve in leadership positions. Look at what it says. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. When you serve in leadership, you got a bullseye on you. You really do. There will always be the Monday morning quarterback who could have done it better. And by the way, this is not only true of serving in church leadership, this is true of serving in any leadership, right? Take on leadership in the workplace, take on leadership in the home, take on leadership in a civic organization. Leaders are targets. And that's why the scripture builds in to this passage protection for leaders. And part of that protection involves being free from complaints and accusations. 
And this is a profound part of this passage that I think sometimes just kind of floats right over the top of our head. When the passage talks about accusation, the word in the original language carries with it the idea of either an accusation or even a complaint. And what the scripture is telling us in no uncertain terms is this, that we aren't to entertain, literally receive, a complaint or an accusation against an elder. And here's why. Suppose somebody incessantly complains about a leader. And they go to various people in the church body and they lobby their complaint. The person who is the object of that complaint has no idea it's going on, so it's impossible to defend themselves, right? You can't do it. So you are receiving accusations and complaints that you cannot defend. Secondly, if the complaints and the accusations are unfounded, the person who is making those complaints has already eroded confidence in the church body toward the leader. And that destroys the work of a leader. A number of years ago, our church went through a very difficult time. And we experienced some of the criticism of my ministry and the elders' ministry. And it hurt our church deeply. What we need to do is follow what the Scripture says. And it says, don't receive an accusation or a complaint against a leader. And you know what that means? If somebody starts to complain about a leader, stop them dead in their tracks. Stop them dead in their tracks and say, that is unscriptural. Have you been to the elders? Have you discussed your issue with them? And if you haven't discussed it with them, then please don't discuss it with me. That's the way we should do it. That's the biblical approach. That's the biblical model. Don't receive an accusation against an elder. There's this process that's put into place that needs to be followed by the church body for the protection of the leader and for the protection of the church body. That's what the scripture is telling us with clarity right here. So, we need to be careful to ourselves not complain and not accuse. But secondly, we need to be careful about listening to those who would complain and accuse. And as soon as they do, they are breaching the word of God. And as soon as we receive it and we listen to it, we are breaching the word of God. That's why this protection is put into place. Now, the scripture goes on. Are all elders going to lead perfect lives? No. Elders can lose perspective. Elders can be clearly in the wrong. And so that is allowed for, first of all, here in the 19th verse. Look at what the scripture says. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder. Now here's the caveat. Unless, and this is a very clear command, it is brought by two or three witnesses. Now here we have the biblical model of two or three witnesses. But let me explain what two or three witnesses means. By two or three witnesses, it doesn't mean that two or three people have listened to the complaints of this other person and I'm coming along with them because I'm concerned about those complaints too. It means first-hand knowledge. It means I have witnessed this or I have talked to the individual that this pertains to and they have freely admitted to it. That's the idea. So when an elder is out of line, there's a process that's put into place. The person with the accusation or the complaint is to come to all of the elders and they're to say, are you aware of this going on in so-and-so's life? And they're to bring it to the leadership of the church and the leadership of the church then has the responsibility before God to deal with that situation. What I've seen in my 35 years of ministry is often 
people circumvent that. They don't bring it to the leadership of the church, or if they do and they don't get a satisfactory response, they assume that there's a conspiracy at work. And such is not the case. Often when you're in leadership, you're privy to information that you cannot share. You would be breaking a confidence. So you have the responsibility of holding a confidence and not giving the full context of a decision. Now, as human beings, we want all of the skinny on what went down, right? We want to know those minute details. We want to know everything about everything that happened. And if a leader is following the scripture where it tells us to not break confidences, to not gossip, we have to hold to what the scripture says. And what happens in our culture is because there are so many politicians who stonewall and so many politicians who hide the truth, it's assumed that that's what's going on with the leadership of the church as well. And nothing could be further from the truth. So there's a process in place. That process is you are to go to the leadership of the church with your accusation and you are to hand that over to them. Now look at verse 20. When we come to verse 20, we find that when an elder errs, we are to publicly rebuke them. Look at what the scripture says. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. Now, in order to understand this verse, we have to look carefully at what the scripture is saying when it says those who sin. The NIV I think, doesn't make it as clear as some of our other translations. When we look at the New American Standard Version, they really catch the sense of what the original language said because it says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And then the English Standard, those who persist in sin rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What's it saying? You see an elder who commits an isolated sin. You're not to take them before the church and reveal the isolated sin. If they've committed that sin and they turn and they repent and they say, I did this sin in private, but I have done wrong, It doesn't mean that you have to air everything that that person has done before the church body. The concept of this passage is crystal clear. It's the ones who are in unrepentant, persistent sin that are to be brought before the church and rebuked. It becomes something that they just refuse to deal with. You know, I experienced a situation like this in a previous church. First church that I served in as a full-time pastor, I was the young punk kid on the pastoral staff, the youngest one on the staff. And the fellow that was the chairman of the elder board taught a large Sunday school class of about 60 people, was on the Christian school board. I mean, this guy was dialed in to every ministry within the church. So about a year after I was there, by the way, he was the chairman of the search committee that brought me on as well. But after about a year While I was there, one of my college students said, hey, have you heard about this man? I won't use his name. Did you know that he left his wife and he reunited with a girl that he knew in high school at the health club? Well, thinking of 1 Timothy chapter 5, I said, you be quiet and don't you spread that. That's an awful accusation. But then we called an emergency elder meeting, and sure enough, it was true. And my heart sunk. And we went to this brother, and we pleaded with him. We asked him to please turn from the sin that he was pursuing. He had two college-age kids and a five-year-old kid that came later at home, and we pled with him to please repent. 
but he would not. He was so twisted, he even said, this is the will of God for my life. I missed the will of God when I married my wife and had the kids. Now I've found the will of God. I should have married this girl that I knew in high school. Completely twisted, completely distorted. So what did the church have to do? The church had to bring it before the church body, the specific sin that had brought him to the place of dismissal. He was removed from the elder board and he was rebuked before the church body. And it was painful. But it showed to everyone in the church that sin has to be taken seriously no matter who is committing the sin. There's been a recent scandal that has come to the attention of many, the Ashley Madison scandal. If you don't know what Ashley Madison is, it's a website where people hook up with other people and have adulterous affairs. A hacker got into their information and some 400 pastors were exposed for being a part of the website. One of them that was found was in a larger church, had adult kids serving in ministry, and took his own life out of shame. It's been a horrible, horrible blight on the church. Painful. But you know, many churches are handling this when they find out that their pastor was involved. By the way, full disclosure, I am not involved. Okay. And they started to research what was going on. And you know what they found? Some of the pastors who were accused of being on the site, they were named. Someone had used their name as an alias. And their credit card information and their email information didn't match up with what was provided by the hackers. So some men were falsely accused. Can you imagine going through that? Just horrible. But some were guilty as charged. And the churches have to work through all that is required to, first of all, confront and rebuke, but secondly, to restore these men and see them become a part of the church body. And that's the spirit that this is shared in the rebuke. The public rebuke isn't so we can all do this to the person who has erred and feel superior. There's a purpose behind it. And that is to see them delivered from their sin, to be a deterrent to others who might consider engaging in the same kind of sin. This is what God calls the church to do. Now let's move on to the next part of this passage because there's a charge here that we really have to understand. So what we've seen thus far is we are to provide for the needs of the pastor. We see that we are to protect them from false accusation or complaints. We see that we are to publicly rebuke them. But then we also see that we're to do all of this without partiality. You know, when you work in ministry, you form tight bonds with those who serve alongside you. And there's a part of you that wants to protect them like a lion. But here's what the Word of God tells us in regard to that. Verse 21. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do not show favoritism. Wow. It's a tough command there, isn't it? There are people that you naturally gravitate to and you say, eh, give them a pass. Right? You want to. They're popular. They're well-liked. You want to take care of them. There are some people that you look at and you say, I don't really like this person very much. And I kind of want to jump on the bandwagon and jump on him with both feet because, yeah, I finally get rid of this guy. Right? That can be part of our motivation as well. Partiality is not to play a part in any of our decisions. We are seriously 
to follow what the scripture has said. And what I want us to look at is this 21st verse, because this is some strong language. It's some of the strongest language that we find in 1 Timothy. Look at how Paul frames this. First of all, he says, I charge you. Paul is an apostle, representative of Jesus Christ, sent to teach the word and even to teach on behalf of Christ. He has a huge position in the early church, so he's calling on his own authority, but he doesn't stop there. He's saying, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Wow. You know, what he's saying is, God is watching the way we treat our leaders, and we'll give an account before him in the way that we do. Now, that's a powerful statement. It's before God. It's before Christ. It's before the elect angels. They're watching us. We have a responsibility to do things right. See, God detests partiality. He doesn't want us showing favoritism. In fact, James said this. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. So suppose you have somebody who's in the church and they're very well versed. They can share all kinds of scripture. They can do all kinds of important leadership roles and they speak against brother elders or leaders of the church and erode the confidence of the church body toward those leaders. They have done a serious thing before God, before Christ Jesus, before the elect elders. God holds them accountable. Powerful, powerful statement is being made right here. Then we go on. As we come to verse 22... We find a perspective on sin and good deeds being exposed. After this charging that we are to do this, because we're doing it in the sight of God and Christ and the elect angels, verse 22 gives us some warnings. See, the church has a responsibility to choose good leaders so that you don't have to go through the painful process that has been described. So let's look at some of the additional ideas that are shared. First of all, this idea. Problems come when we lay hands on a leader too hastily. Now, in our culture, when we talk about laying hands on somebody, it's an act of violence. In this passage, and by the way, it is not saying don't be too hasty and you know, decken somebody. What it's saying is this. It's talking about a recognition and appointment to leadership. And so what it's saying is, don't find a person that you think would be a great leader when you don't really know them, when they haven't really shown who they are. We have to be careful not to take somebody who maybe isn't qualified and put them into a position of leadership. And here's why. And notice how this is said here in the 22nd verse, tied to the idea of laying our hands on them hastily is the idea of sharing in their sin. So here's the concept. We choose someone as a leader who isn't qualified and they do terrible things. We share responsibility for putting them into place when they shouldn't have been. That's the idea. Wow. I mean, this church stuff is serious stuff, isn't it? But what it's doing is warning the church body. If there's a position of leadership that is needed, don't find the nearest warm body and say, let's plug them in. There are qualifications. There is spiritual maturity that is required. So what we're to do is to be very careful in this and not join in the opportunity for someone to harm the body of Christ. Secondly, 
we have to look at ourselves. Now, Timothy is being addressed here, and as a representative of Paul, as a pastor of the church, what he's saying is this. Now, speaking of sin and finding sin in the lives of others that has to be dealt with, look to yourself. Keep yourself personally pure. You know, I think that's something that pertains to all of us, not just Timothy. First responsibility I have in making sure that someone behaves purely, me. Because I can disqualify myself from ministering to others if I am not pure. If I were one of those pastors that went on Ashley Madison and had a dalliance with a woman who was not my wife, how in the world do I with authority get up on a Sunday morning and preach about purity. There would be no power behind it. There would be no ability to speak authoritatively about these things. God wants us to keep ourselves pure. Now, in light of that, we come to the 23rd verse. I know some of you are probably saying, well, I can't wait to hear what he says about take a little wine for your stomach's sake. I want to hear what pastor says. So here we come to verse 23, and what we find is a situation that's taking place in the church of Ephesus. Many of the false teachers who were in Ephesus taught asceticism, and what that means is, don't do anything. Stay away from everything, you know. Eat dry toast and water, you know, that's it. The more you deny yourself the more spiritual you will be. And so some of them even brought it to the place to where they said, no wine. Now, understand this. Paul is not saying to Timothy, have a kegger for your stomach's sake. Okay? He's not saying, go out and grab the biggest box wine you can find and lip it in the fridge, you know? not the idea. Understand this. The water quality in many of these countries, even today, was such that if you drink water, you're going to get some problems in your digestive tract. Wine was often either added to water or consumed by itself as an alternative when the stomach went haywire. That's the idea. It was viewed as medicinal. Okay? So the idea is not even addressing the concept of whether it's right or it's wrong to drink wine. We've already seen in chapter 3 that elders are not to become drunk and not given too much wine. So the idea is if a person overindulges, they're wrong. But by the same token... Insisting that a person never indulge could be wrong as well. So make sure that your purity is not something that is based on human rules, human tradition. Make sure it's based in Scripture. And I think that's the point that Paul is making to Timothy and to us. Final point. I love this last part of the passage, verses 24 and 25. Practicing good or bad deeds eventually comes to light. Verse 24 says this, the sin, the sin of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. Now, what does that mean? There are some people that you look at and their sins are right out front and center. You see them sin and you go, wow, that person really doesn't have a handle on their sin. It's obvious, it's right there. I can see them being caustic and angry with people. There's a sin of anger. I can see it. It's obvious. But what he's counseling Timothy is this, that sometimes things aren't as in your face with everyone as they are with some. Because the text goes on to say this. The sin of some 
are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, the sins of others trail behind them. In other words, there are some people that are really good at hiding their sin. It takes a long time for that sin to catch up with them. We need to remember what the book of Numbers says. If you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Listen, (laughs) our sin always finds us out. When I was a kid, I had a very godly mom. And I'd do something sneaky behind her back that I knew was wrong. And she was like clairvoyant or something. I don't know, man. She always found out. No matter how well I covered my tracks, she would know. And you know what I found myself doing? Even if she didn't discover it, the guilt killed me so much, I'd say, Mom, I did this. And boom, I let her know. Understand this. The sin of some people, it it, it trails behind them. And, And can't that be frustrating? Especially if you know that this person has a sin issue that's going on. You don't want to be guilty of gossip. You go to them, you talk to them. They hide it. You can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but you strongly suspect it. And so you walk away because if you don't have proof, you can't make an accusation. And then time goes by. A little bit later, sure enough, they lied to me when I asked them about that. It's evident that they were guilty of that sin. You know what we need to do in that? Release that to God. Many of us have a strong sense of justice where we look at it and we say, i got to see that this is taken care of, and i got to see that this is taken care of now. But what God teaches us is, when those things are done in secret, and they're hidden, I'll bring it to light. In my time, in my way, I'll bring it to light. And that's where we as believers have to trust God. If there's a leader who has done something to you and hurt you in some way, and you don't have two or three witnesses, maybe this passage comes into play where you have to stand back and you have to say, God, you'll vindicate me in your time, so I'll wait on you, and I'll trust you. We have to have that freedom so that we don't allow that to turn into bitterness. But then look at the last part, and this is the better part. Verse 25. In the same way, good deeds are obvious... And even those that are not cannot be hidden. There are some people who do good things, and they're not going around tooting their own horn. But we see them, and we look at them, and we say, wow, what a godly person. That person is great. I can see the good things that they're doing, and that's beautiful. But you know what? There are a lot of people who do wonderful things very anonymously. And you don't know about it. There have been a few times when I've gone to a funeral and I thought, man, I really know this person. I've interacted with them. I know they do a lot of good things. But then you go to the funeral and the eulogy is given. And I know what you're thinking. Eulogies, you always make everybody sound better than they are, right? But in some instances, there are things that I never knew that they were doing that were wonderful, good things. And as it's opened up, for people to have an opportunity to share, you hear their story. I was hungry and alone, and they put me up. Deed after deed after deed brought to the light things that had been hidden, that the person wouldn't have talked about himself or herself. But when the opportunity came, God received glory for what they had done, because even those hidden good deeds came to light. Listen, we want to be the people who have the good deeds brought to light, not the bad deeds. And what we need to do is, in seeking to do that, be very careful about how we approach the leaders of the church, understanding that they will have good things that they're doing that we have no clue about. 
And if they are people who are doing bad things that most have no clue about, God will bring that to light. And that's where we trust God. Let me encourage you as a church body. Meditate on this scripture. Think about what it's saying. And encourage some of the leaders in our church. Now, you guys encourage me all the time, and I appreciate that. But we have elders who, who serve. And I'll tell you, being an elder in any church is grueling. It's difficult. Go up to them and encourage them. Just even if it's a word of thanks, express that word of thanks. Express thanks to TJ and Dan and make sure that you tell them you, you, you see what they're doing and you appreciate that. That helps. That ministers to them. And then above all, be careful about the way that we complain about one another or about our leaders. That devastates them. When it circles back to them, and it will, they hurt. They get discouraged. Sometimes walk away. God wants us to be faithful in encouraging those who lead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the reminder that it is to all of us that we have a responsibility to encourage those who lead. So may we be faithful to that task. Thank you for the godly leaders in this church body. Thank you for Pastor Stuck, for Dan, for TJ, for each one of our elders. Lord, they're good men, and I'm thankful for them. Pray that you would be with the men on the retreat this weekend. I pray that you would give them safe journey back. I pray that you would let them come back, although tired, refreshed. Be with our church, we pray, Lord. We see so many good things ahead, and we know that as God, you can work these things to your glory. So may Oaklawn Bible Church glorify you, I pray, in Jesus' name.